The Mel Brooks Western Blazing Saddles is filled to bursting with laughs, gags, bits, and numbers. But the joke of it is what if we took an old Western trope, a small town terrorized by outlaws desperate for help, along comes a paladin on horseback to face them down, and turned it on its head by making the hero a black man. Brooks, in fact, wanted Richard Pryor to play the part, but the studio was afraid of his reputation, even then. This had more to do with his drug habits than his outspoken stand-up, but putting Pryor on screen as Black Bart would have made Blazing Saddles seem far more political a film than it did with the lesser-known, but brilliant, Cleavon Little in the part. In either case, there would be no question that the hero is coming to the town of Rock Ridge and trying to assimilate. Neither Pryor nor Little could even come close to passing, that is, appearing white enough to be mistaken as such. And good thing. The joke relies on that difference, and particularly how townspeople and villains alike react to having a black man, a much smarter man than they, to deal with. Now, the notion of passing is common enough in our culture. The landmark musical Showboat deals with it, as do the movies Pinky, I Passed for White, The Spook Who Sat by the Door, Devil in a Blue Dress, White Chicks, The Human Stain. But note, these are all about people passing as white, the only time the concept went the other way, having a white person pass for black, and let's not get into minstrelsy and blackface just here, seemed to be either for comedic effect, as in the movies Soul Man and Tropic Thunder, or for reportage, as in Black Like Me. One can see why the balance leans more one way than the other. In the 19th and 20th centuries, attempting to assimilate into an oppressed minority would have to be considered a counterintuitive move. Unless, of course, one found an angle that made doing so worthwhile. A mingle like a flame in the sky Flying over the island to my lover nearby Flamingo Herb Jeffries was born Umberto Alexander Valentino in Detroit in 1913. His mother was Irish. His father was of Sicilian, French-Canadian, and Ethiopian descent. In one interview, he said he considered himself to be three-eighths Negro. In another, he denied that he ever passed as a black man, or even could. But look, he started out as a singer 
heavily influenced by Bing Crosby, and at Louis Armstrong's urging moved from Detroit to Chicago in the early 30s. Perhaps to avoid anti-Italian stereotyping in Al Capone-era Chicago, he dropped Valentino for his stepfather's surname of Jeffrey, sometimes Jeffreys, just one of many alterations to his self in his career. He would also claim to be Louisiana Creole to pass as black and explain his Caucasian features. He sang with jazz giants Earl Hines, Sidney Bechet, and Duke Ellington. He toured the American South, surrounded by black musicians, living with them at the height of Jim Crow laws that ensured they could play, eat, and sleep in colored-only hotels, restaurants, and theaters. He told NPR's Terry Gross in 1995 that he would never have stayed in a whites-only hotel then, even though he could have, but would occasionally go out and get food for the others in the band because only he could. This ability to have it both ways, I imagine, set Jeffries up for criticism from either side throughout his life. But his is one more 20th century proto-American story of reinvention, Great Gatsby with a happier ending. He was shrewd, he was adaptable, he was talented, and he played hopscotch through America's notions of race in order to live the life he wanted. Seeing pictures with his bandmates in the movie houses of the segregated South, he recognized that there were almost no blacks portrayed in the westerns so popular at the time. Further, and of particular interest to a singer like Jeffries, there were no black singing cowboys. The singing cowboy had been around since Ken Maynard in the 1920s. Gene Autry, Roy Rogers, Tex Ritter all sang and played and solved crimes in their B-movies and serials throughout the Depression. But the black audiences had no one like that to look up to. So Jeffries obtained financing and set about to become the first black singing cowboy, Bob Blake, writing songs, doing his own stunts in what he jokingly called C-movies, very low budget, shot in a week, Harlem on the Prairie, The Bronze Buckaroo, Harlem Rides the Range, and Two-Gun Man from Harlem. He prided himself on playing the hero, never using his guns unless in self-defense, and even with his lighter skin and eye color, he was up there on the big screen, a hero for black audiences. For an audience in the Deep South in 1937, in a colored-only movie house showing race movies, the effect of this had to be huge. In later years, Herb Jeffries hopped over that line again, claiming, for instance, to be white when filling out the form that would allow him to marry the exotic dancer Tempest Storm. He was, he knew, the result of the mixing of many cultures, and in that most American way played the system to his own advantage time after time. Not long before his recent death at 100, his wife Savannah told a BBC interviewer that Herb doesn't see color. And though we're accustomed to Stephen Colbert saying the same thing for a laugh in the Obama post-racism era, I'm inclined to give Herb Jeffries the benefit of the doubt. You can bet your bottom dollar that you'll never hear me holler about the word on the rain. With my rope and my saddle and my horse and my gun, 
Pretty Much, Episode 47, The Bronze Buckaroo, written and read by Scott Clarkson, music by Herb Jeffries with Duke Ellington, and Cats and the Fiddle, and Garner Firebird.